0: No Mickey show We Clash momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating give the masses back as currency Greed from elites oligarchs stay fed deep state Faith fed everybody break bread racism homophobia sexism religion in this melted by We live in time to build a new system unionize labor rights Highlight the issue Talking heads left his best The saga continues it's the no Mickey show
1: Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Const and it is Friday, fun Friday, July 23rd in the depths of summer. That's where we are right now. Uh, It is hot pretty much everywhere on the planet. And if it is not hot, it is flooding. And uh, also everywhere on the planet, there's a whole lot of vax denial. There are anti-vaxxers who have decided that this is their moment to shine to hold up civilization, to end civilization as we know it, to beat climate change, because if you're not gonna get killed by climate change, and I'm not joking, you probably will from the new variants of Delta, uh, or the Delta virus will continue and it'll continue uh, transforming. I, <laughs> After the show on Wednesday, I uh, had to go through the main area in front of the legislature here in Athens, Greece, called Syntagma Square, and There was an anti vax rally there being led by the far right. So far right that they were calling the current center right, which is in a coalition with the far right, administration here communists because they had said that they want to impose uh, vaccinations, mandatory vaccinations for all public employees. Nurses, that's the big one. And of course, uh, you had factions of the right wing nationalist party um, come together and, uh, they decided to protest the Mitsutaki's government, calling them communists. And so the Mitsutaki's government brought the police and there was violence. Yes. Cause it is so far left to bring out the police and hit people who are at a rally that is so far left. So, you know, things are crazy everywhere. This is happening all over the planet. Um, the spread of misinformation—it has not been contained, and we're going to talk about that on the show today. Just how do we control the information fight? Uh, this is something I think a lot of folks in our space, in the left podcasting space and YouTube space, have been dealing with in our own ways. Uh, whether it's you know taking on left hosts that have suddenly created alliances with the right wing and the populist right or supposed pseudo populist right—that's happening all over the globe, and we've talked about this on the show. I've Stayed away from it because it creates a lot of of drama online. And I don't believe that the online podcast host drama is useful or beneficial to society. We want to talk about building. We want to talk about what it takes to transform this landscape and to actually create a more just future and what it means to transform, whether it's the Democratic Party or DSA, build DSA, or run more candidates who are progressive and working class. That's what we want to focus on. And so I really don't like to get caught up in this crazy drama that's online. But the rise of fascism is happening everywhere. And one of the utilities of the fascist and fascist aligned governments and parties and, and political movements that are happening everywhere, whether it's Orban in Hungary uh, or in Italy uh, or you know so many other places, whether it's the Ukraine, um, what you see is that there is an alignment with a populist base and oftentimes it can spill over into uh, the YouTube space and podcast space, media figures. And so in every country has their own political system, but the crux, a big part of this uh, has come out of this, this anti-vax, anti-mask debate that has been happening globally, uh, especially in westernized you know, democracies. There is a goal to break apart these these, uh, unity governments, to break apart these westernized democracies, to take on the neoliberal establishment, which I completely understand. Uh, But oftentimes it's not happening from the left. Most times it's happening from the right. Those are the ones that are winning. And those are the ones who have the capital to spread misinformation and propaganda, like how masks don't help you and how they're infringing on individual freedom, Um, like you know, anti, the anti-vaxxers who are crusading against China, <laughs> but uh, also against the government for imposing the vaccination restrictions. Okay, if you're so afraid of the China virus, then why don't you take the vaccination? Why don't you take the vax? I don't understand. So all of this has been pushed out through so many different media channels that are echoing the same talking points, whether you're in the Ukraine, whether you're in Italy, whether you're in Greece, whether you're in the U.S talking points are very similar and they're strategic and they're thought out and they're orchestrated because what the right does so well is they plan and they get on the same page and they fix the language to fit their unique political system. They fix the alliances based on their unique political system and to work within the law, uh, laws that they have in their countries. But this is serious. This is very serious. You know, they're, you're seeing echoes of this everywhere, whether it's the far right teaming up with some members of the left in the United States or the supposed left, the, you know, the folks who have spent most of their time knocking down the left and have no problem teaming up and aligning and echoing the same talking points as the right wing, well-funded populist movement. That is not going to get us out of this disaster. That is not gonna end the pandemic. Going after AOC, going after the squad, going after female leftist political hosts who are talking about, you know, taking on misinformation and building organization and teaching, you know, working with historians and political scientists to try to build on a leftist movement, taking those folks on is not beneficial. Calling them agents and this and that and not real left, that is not beneficial. Because the other thing is, is many of these people have absolutely no experience in the movement, in organizing, who is funding them, where do they come from? This is what's important to look at. We have to be smarter. This isn't a joke anymore. This is not some YouTube fighting anymore. This is about a pandemic that continues. This is about whether it's Joe Rogan, who who Spotify had no problem having with the largest platform talking about how uh, the pandemic wasn't real, and that masks weren't gonna, he was an anti-masker. You know, whether it's platforming these folks and major corporations platforming them, who are having all no internal coups, editorial coups in the corporations for not checking, not having any editorial standards. This is not censorship. This is called editorialism. And that is a design. Steve Bannon created a school in Italy a couple of years ago to train people all over the world to echo these talking points, these anti-China talking points, these censorship talking points. Anytime somebody goes, look at Marjorie Taylor Greene. Anytime somebody says something, you're censoring me. You're censoring me. Well, you are spreading information that endangers the future of society. With your power, This democracy that we live in, this supposed democracy we live in, with free speech comes great responsibility. And the privilege associate, the privilege of so many of these people who are such victims, that they have millions of followers and millions of dollars flowing in every day from their donations, the privilege that they have to make themselves out to be the victims. Well, literally 600,000 plus people have died of this virus. And how many people would not have died who had autoimmune disorders or were in can- had cancer, who caught the virus because of the misinformation and the propaganda that has been spread by the far right. So much so that it's repeated over and over that well-meaning people are starting to believe it. And how many people got that virus because of that misinformation? Now we have a new variant and we have to go back to the masks, to go back to the old ways because this is a political game for them. You don't want to be infringed on? Have fun when the fascists are in power. Go ask Hungary how they feel right now. Go ask the Ukraine how they feel right now, or parts of Italy. You think police violence is bad now? Oh, you just wait. Just wait. We have to think critically about these things. And I'm personally, you know, the the, the online Twitter drama between the hosts, I don't even want to engage. I don't even want to be on Twitter anymore. But you know what happens is I don't want to be on Twitter anymore and that's kind of what they're trying to do. They're trying to silence people. They don't want people to get engaged. They want to bully people out of being part of the public discourse. Want to know about censorship? That's a form of censorship. But it's a lot harder when you're when you're independent media. Free thinking, you're not unified, we're not echoing each other's talking points when we're all working together to build solidarity, but we are all independent thinking people who are not being pushed out by major dollars. It is a lot easier for them because it is a job for them, whether they're conscious of being utilities of the far right or not. Whether the far right is preying on people wanting to be famous or wanting more clicks or wanting to make money, or wanting to be on other shows or wanting to be on the ca- and cable. This is the design and it is happening all over the world. They want a weak left because the weak left is the only thing that can actually penetrate and challenge the neoliberal center left around the world that has been in power for the last 30 years in many countries. The far right wants the far left to be fractured. The far right wants to pull people from the far left into the populist right, not just so that the far right grows, but so that the far left is so splintered and they're fighting with each other. So they don't take over the Democratic Party and suddenly become a force of nature against the far right. They want the left and the center left to fight with each other. But they want the left to really not be strong enough to defeat the center left. And they want the center left to stay weak so that they can stay in power. The problem is, is that we're in the middle of a pandemic and climate change is in our face. They're in; It's in our faces. So I'm staying out of this psychopathic drama that is happening online, but I am also going to use my moment that I have on this channel twice a week to reinforce that the stakes are high. Think long-term, think big, pick your battles. They want to silence folks, you know, to stop fighting. They They don't want us pushing back. They don't want us unified. That's their strategy. But the consequences are we're going to be in the middle of a pandemic for the next 20 years if climate change doesn't come after us first, if it hasn't already come to your neighborhood or your block, if the floods haven't come in, if the heat waves haven't come in, if the power hasn't gone out. These are the conversations we're having every single week. But the consequences are too dire. The stakes are too high. I say stay out of the Twitter drama and focus on what's important. And. You have a friend that falls for this stuff, maybe just remind them that this is the strategy. This is why our show was created in the beginning, to talk about how to build movements and discuss strategy. Well, this is their strategy. All right, guys, we have a wonderful show today. We are gonna be talking about, <laughs> we're gonna be talking about a lot of this stuff uh, with our dear friend Francesca Fiorentini. She's gonna be on in the second part of the first hour. Uh, we'll be talking about vaccinations and uh, foreign policy of the Biden administration. Uh, but before that, speaking of foreign policy, we will be discussing uh, some how the VA, the VA in particular, uh, and how you know the the military uh, industrial complex has completely ignored sexual assault. With Allison Gill, Doctor Gill uh, is a military sexual assault survivor and a Navy veteran. Uh, And she's a doctor of public health. And then later on, the one and only Jamie Peck is here to join us to talk about what's happening this week in the news, um, as well as Alex Press. She's a staff writer at Jacobin, and she focuses on labor. So stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Allison Gill, Dr. Gill, is a doctor of public health. She's uh, she' is a Navy veteran and she's a military sexual assault survivor, as well as the host of the Daily Beans podcast. Dr. Gill, thank you so much for joining us and for being so courageous and talking about these issues that are so, so hard to discuss, especially publicly, um, and really, you know, turning it into your work.
2: Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Yes. So you um, you're a Navy veteran and you're a, uh, you experience sexual assault. Uh, in the military, which, you know, thank goodness this is now being discussed in a more open way, um, partly due to some of the the developments that we're going to discuss later on in the podcast or in the show. Uh, But what what was, when did you serve and and, and what was your experience like?
2: Uh, Well, I started, uh, I went in in 94. That was the year that they first started letting women into the nuclear program. And uh, because I tested well, um, they were really trying to recruit women into that program. So um, I, I accepted the, the, the offer. Uh, but when I got to the, um, to the school, to Naval Nuclear Power Training Command in Orlando, it was me and maybe, I think, two or three other women and about 600 men. Um, they were so ill-prepared to accept women that they didn't even have a GYN on base, for example. So uh, it was it was kind of they didn't they had like special barracks way away from everyone else. So it was just it was a little odd. And of course, it was off-putting because all of the men had to be trained on sensitivity and sexual harassment, which made them all very angry (laughs) before we got there. Shocked. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we were we were already kind of set up to not be welcomed, Um, but it was. It was, and the school was also very difficult. Uh, but I think that the thing that was probably the most traumatizing, aside from the actual assault and rape itself, was something that, and you, you know, you hinted that we're going to talk about this later in the show. That there are some senators in Congress trying to address right now, and that is after this happened. And I went to try to report it to the police, which are called Master at Arms on a Navy base. Uh, I was, I was told that you know. Well, first of all, they asked all the same questions, like what were you wearing, were you flirting, had you been drinking, and then they started to tell me that if I filed a false report, all of the bad things that could happen to me, uh, I could be discharged dishonorably, discharged. I could lose my benefits, my rate, my school, my rank. I could be court-martialed for adultery because my rapist was married. What? Yeah. And I found out later when when I had appeared in the film, um, The Invisible War, that that was used for a lot of people. Many, many women and men were told that they would be charged with adultery for filing a false rape report because their rapist was married. And so this kind of, you know, and, and like I said, that language was repeated over and over again by so many survivors uh, when they tried to report their, their assaults and their rapes. And that I think was why it was so important that we started fighting to take the decision whether or not to file and prosecute rape charges out of the chain of command of the military.
1: That is horrifying. So you, you, you filed and then and then I mean I guess the doctor's like, what happened? I mean, did did the person fight back? What happened to the to the person who raped you?
2: Oh, I did not file a report. They scared the pejesus out of me. So I did not file a report. And in fact, their language was so pointed when they, you know, said, you know, you were drinking, you were flirting with this guy. Look you know, you were wearing this. It was nighttime. You were at a party. Let's just chalk this up to a like bad judgment on your part. And I was 19. I was very young, 20. And I believed that. And that's why so many men, women, people who are survivors of of assault and rape, military or otherwise, internalize it and blame themselves. And in fact, I blamed myself so hard, like so much. I internalized their language and it impacted me so much that Many years later, when my best friend was assaulted, their words came out of my mouth to my best friend. Like, why were you drinking? Why did you invite him over? Why were you flirting? This victim shaming and blaming coming out of my mouth. And so whenever I hear people say that, particularly women, I always try to remember that perhaps they are blaming themselves for an attack that they survived. And to probably try to have that conversation with them as well. But that's one of the biggest regrets of my life and why I was so angry at the people who who did this and wouldn't let me report it. And that there was nobody there to take my report um, was because of what what happened with my best friend and how I internalized it so much. It was it's terrible. It's awful.
1: Had you um, I mean, there were there how many women that were in the middle of four, you said? Like three or four on base. Four. Had they, had you heard of any other experiences? Had it,
2: uh, no. No, and as a matter of fact, because of the the threats that were laid upon me about dishonorable discharge, losing my benefits, et cetera, I didn't tell. I kept, well, I kept it a secret. And also, like I said, I fully believed it was my fault. So there wouldn't have been anything to tell, you know?
1: So when did you come forward? when did you realize, I mean, I I guess this is, this is the first question um, I have myself a victim. So many women are, 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 are are victims of sexual assault. I know for myself, I didn't even realize it until 10 years later. And then suddenly it was like, Oh, because of those internalized issues and, and just the normalcy and not really understanding what sexual assault was and all of the the, the issues that you are laying out. It's, it's so, it's so normal, right? It's, it's unfortunately very normal. So did you, you did realize it right away because you'd gone through the process of understanding what it meant to file a report, but then holding that in and, and then taking all the internalized messaging, all the messaging that they, they gave you and internalizing that, um, what, what did it take for you to kind of crack open and, and realize, oh, this
2: is not right. And I am a victim. Yeah, well, and, and that kind of internalization started immediately after the assault. Um, just based on the culture that we live in, when I said, turned to my assailant and said, I didn't want to do that. I had been drugged and and woke up the next morning. And I said, I didn't want to do that. And he looked at me and said, Oh, are you going to cry rape? So that's like hit one, you know, and then I go try to report, dig, 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 and they push it and push it. And just like you 10 years. It took 10 years for me to even realize that anything happened to me. And the way that it cracked open was because you can't have that kind of traumatic event happen to you without having uh, some sort of physiological issues bubble to the surface at some point. And for me, it was panic attacks. I started having panic attacks. and I didn't even recognize what they were. And I thought I was having a heart attack. I was, you know, thirty. Two thirty-one 31 years old, thinking I'm having a cardiac event. So I drive myself to the VA because I've never been to the VA, but I'm a veteran. So they have to help me. Right. And uh, they took an EKG brought me in. They're like, you're not having a heart attack. And they they've seen this a million times. I've never seen it. And so they start asking me um, the, the questions like, have you ever been in combat? Do you, you know, asking me these, post-traumatic stress screening questions. And, and they're and they asked if I had ever been sexually assaulted. And I was like, no. And I was like, well, there was this one thing that happened, but that's not, that was my fault, you know? And they're like, no, that's not your fault. And that's when they started to get me into programs to talk to people and uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, in this point, it's 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 many years later. I mean, the fact that there even were people who are equipped to even relay that to you at the VA is is pretty incredible. Especially, you know, it was what two thousand four. Yeah, that's 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 it's amazing. So uh, afterwards, your journey. Um, where, where have you gone in your journey, and 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 now where do we stand in society? I mean, like I said, ten years after my assault, that was only. That was not even 10 years ago that I realized. So some of these issues that you're talking about, granted, it was just it wasn't in the military. But the fact that, like, outside of the military, (laughs) you know, I did not live in a military culture. I was still having those experiences. You know, I I imagine that um, it's been much, 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 much more difficult to reform, uh, educate, even with legislation, even with public pressure, even with Oscar winning documentaries. Uh, Where do we stand right now? (laughs)
2: But it's, you know, it's interesting um, when you talk about, first of all, the 10 years, you know, uh, maybe that's how long it takes for these, for trauma to manifest itself into really um, obvious things that interfere with your life. I don't know. I don't know. That'd be an interesting study to look at. Um, But, you know, when you you say that you didn't even realize it, uh, after the documentary came out, we went on a speaking tour of major universities, Columbia, NYU, UC Irvine, UCLA, um, just all across the country. And they would screen the film. And these are usually women's studies classes, feminist studies classes. They would screen the film and then we would do a a panel, a Q and A, some of like three or four of us who were in the film. And we would tell our stories. And literally after each discussion that we would have because these are college-aged girls and women. They aren't military but there would be a line of of young women who would want to come and talk to us many with tears in their eyes many saying I think this happened to me and I didn't even realize it. It's that you it's the that it's so ingrained in our culture and our culture is so sick that we don't even know it's happening until many years later when we have to face it, you know? Um, but now, and it's, you know, it's been a decade since the film came out almost and, uh, Gillibrand's been pushing to have the decision to, uh, for whether or not to prosecute sexual assaults taken out of the chain of command, because that's just a huge conflict of interest. Um, your assailant is in the chain of command. The commander could be your assailant. The commander doesn't want more documented sexual assaults on his or her base that, you know, they tend to, they want to brush it under the rug. Uh, th- well, in my case, they want to scare you out of even reporting it. <laughs> so it's not even report- reported. Uh, but uh, finally, uh, people are coming around to this idea to remove that decision from the chain of command because 10 years ago, no one was interested. And so they instituted these sexual assault prevention programs like, Uh, That usually put the put the onus on the survivor, the victim to make the change like the buddy system. I remember watching a training film where a a woman was walking back to her barracks at night and was assaulted by uh, by someone. And then she ran to the police or on base, the military police, and said she had been assaulted. And the first question they asked her was, well, why weren't you with your buddy? You're supposed to have a buddy with you at all times.
1: She didn't have a rape whistle. Yeah.
2: Right, oh, interesting. It's 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 her. You know, it's her job to not be assaulted. It's not our job to tell people not to assault her. And um, they had a poster that said, "Ask her when she's sober." That was one of their campaigns. Um, just absolutely ridiculous uh, remedies for these kinds of things. So now, finally, And I have to ask you: Who was creating these campaigns? Where did this come from? There was, they put it, a woman in charge under Petraeus, and I can't remember her name. Um, I'm going to have to, I'm <laughs> going to have to I know, under Petraeus. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, but she, she was awful, and it was horrible, and that's what they've been trying to do for the last 10 years. And the data have shown that the number of s- reported sexual assaults is going up, not even talking about the unreported stuff, and, but the number of. Prosecutions is staying the same. So it hasn't been working. So finally they put together the MJ, the MJIA, Military Justice Improvement Act. And then she gets Joni Ernst to sign on, who is a Republican because Senator Gillibrand gets Joni Ernst. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. So Senator Gillibrand gets Joni Ernst, Senator Joni Ernst to sign on because Joni Ernst is a survivor of sexual assault. And she has a young daughter at West Point who's having some issues. And, and, and that's kind of the interesting thing. Some people don't come around until it happens to them or their family members. And then um, now we've got Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin backing this. President Joe Biden put together a commission to make recommendations on how to um, you know, get, yeah, attack or fight sexual assault in the military or prevent it. And that commission has finally come forward with their findings, which include taking the decision out of the chain of command on whether to prosecute. And then amazingly, Senator Gillibrand and Senator Ernst had gotten 66 senators to sign on as co-sponsors to this bill. You can't get 66 senators to decide if the sky is blue. So that was an incredible feat. And she was bringing it up for unanimous consent floor vote. And a Democrat blocked it, Jack Reed from Rhode Island, because he's in charge of putting together, running the committee that does the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. And he wanted to put Senator Gillibrand and Senator Ernst's bill in his NDAA. So this
1: is more about credit or
2: is this really his way of blocking any sort of significant reforms? I don't know because he's been asked that and he won't say. And then also Chuck Schumer has been asked why he just won't bring the bill to the floor for a vote because we've got 66 votes. We could get a bipartisan win. Um, there's some sort of politicking going on that they aren't talking about, but it feels extremely. Ironic that men are blocking this bill. From from happening, but. Go ahead. There is good news. Uh, Senator Gillibrand's bill, the MJA made it into all provisions of her bill, made it into the NDAA after markup. So it looks like everything is intact and it's not going to be watered down. The only thing is it's going to be delayed now because that doesn't go into effect until I think December or January of 2022, December 2021, January 2022. Meanwhile, how many people? Are assaulted between now and then.
1: Well, what really confuses me is what is there to lose? Is this just like, I, you know, is there some aspect of this where it'll be exposed? Just how prevalent this is? Is that the biggest aspect? I mean, is there a national security um, element to this? And I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of like what on earth in any of these senators' right minds? Why would they want to block? having something, a due process, a fair due process or or, or a step towards a fair due process um, in the military when it's not as if people don't know, right? I mean, there was there was a documentary on it. They got a lot of attention. It's not like people don't know. It's not like foreign governments don't know. So I can't really understand what what the reasoning is behind potentially blocking this.
2: I think you touched on it. And it's the reason that some... Uh, folks in politics don't want to teach the real history of the United States. Uh, and they want to hide that shameful past. I, I think maybe national security, but mostly I think powerful politics, uh, power powerful politicians in the United States want commanders to continue to have control over what happens on their base. Because if, if we actually allow people to report sexual assault in the military, these numbers are going to explode and, and, and that's going to look bad and it needs to, honestly. Um, are, there,
1: are there other countries that you're aware of um, that have a better process of, of reporting and, and trying uh, sexual assault perpetrators and protecting, you know, those who've been victims or are survivors of sexual assault in the military? Mm,
2: I haven't looked into it. I've been pushing so hard to get reform here in the United States that I'm not familiar with how other militaries uh, handle this, but that's a really good question. I'm going to look into that.
1: It's it's really mind blowing to me. Um, yeah. So, OK, so if this is passed, then what happens? What does it look like? Is it is this exactly what you wish for? or Is this some watered down version?
2: It's not what we initially wanted in 2012. What we were pushing for in 2012 was to have a civilian like Olivia Benson and SVU. like That's where we go to report our military sexual assault. It's out of the military completely. But what this is, and I think why there's so many more people supporting it is that each branch, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Guard will have their own little office at the Pentagon kind of like a DA's office, kind of like a special victims unit. And the lawyers within the unit are going to be in the military. They're they're active duty military lawyers. But they will they will be uh, per the requirements in Senator Gillibrand's bill. They have to be specially trained and special um, specialized in taking these kinds of reports. Uh, and they'll and there'll be one of those little offices for each branch. And that is where you would go to report your 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 sexual assault. Not anyone on base, not anyone who's in your chain of command that you are, are afraid of or don't want retaliation from. So that's how it's going to that's how it's going to look.
1: Would would the perpetrator a, a supposed, you know, perpetrator be alerted to they're being investigated? Like is there or does it just is it a quiet investigation, and then you know they're questioned? How does that How does that work?
2: I don't know. Uh, they haven't really gone into the details on that. I imagine it would look something like what we what we're used to seeing uh, it going, where you know you report, they do a rape kit, they take down all your information, but they, in order to investigate, they will that they're going to alert that person immediately because they're going to have to question them and their whereabouts and what they did, and show them the evidence and present them with the evidence and. It won't be like any kind of, I mean, perhaps maybe the initial reporting would be will be anonymous, but the it can't be anonymous after that.
1: I mean, meanwhile, somebody could still be it could be a superior and you could still be the person could still be working. You know, the, the survivor could still be working under that person while they're being investigated. So I'm thinking about all the elements of how this plays out
2: generally. And, you know, I've worked for the federal government outside of the military. And the way that they handle that is they absolutely do not allow those two, pe- those two people, whether whether they believe the person or not, or they have facts before the investigation even begins, they're completely separated and put in different units. I assume that the same would happen in this case.
3: <sighs> Doing <Doom and> gloom. <laughs> this is all I
1: feel like. Just- Fighting these things for so long, Allison Gill, Doctor Gill, thank you so much for joining us and and for the steadfast work, nonstop work, the dedication for speaking up, speaking out for your courage. Um, this is why we need to elect more women into office as well, because even in a bipartisan world, it can sometimes work, and and these issues can be brought to light. Um, so, I'm just very grateful for your work. Thank you.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you too for speaking up and speaking out. Every every little bit helps. I appreciate it. Of course, of course.
1: All right, coming up next, we have the one and only Francesca Fiorentini. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I am so honored that our dear friend Francesca Fiorentini is is doing this show so early in the morning that she just had her first sip of coffee. While it is 7 p.m. in Greece, it is way earlier <laughs> in california so uh thank you so much francesca is of course the host of the situation room podcast and she was formerly over at newsbroke for aj plus and did that great msnbc medicare for all documentary uh Yay. million other things just a pal a great great gal in the <laughs> podcasting space
4: thanks omiki yeah. i'm yeah oh yeah there's that Ooh. Yeah, no, it's, uh, thank you for, um, tempering my appearance today by saying that I'm not yet fully caffeinated. I appreciate it. Not the earliest I've done a a hit, though. Uh, The Hill had me on for something about, uh, the Olympics and whether women are disrespecting it. That one athlete was disrespecting it by not standing or saluting. I don't know. It was very, it wasn't as good as this show is what I'm trying to say. Well, thank you.
1: (laughs) It's, it's, it's fascinating because like I, You know in the old days when we used to, when I used to do more cable news I would sit there on It's not fascinating at all, it's painful I would do these like really late night You know post debate analyses And then be like can you stick around And can you do the morning show at four o'clock in the morning So go home, I would sleep for two hours Then finally got to the point I You can only do this when you're young Like I can't do it now, I can't, I'll just say no I'm like not worth it, not happening yeah, I'd yeah, rather yeah. just like do my own thing I would sleep in the green room I would wipe my makeup down so I wouldn't like break out. And then two hours later, I'd put it all back on. I constantly smelled like hair products, like all the different hair products just oh piled in. So I would walk into a room and be like, what is that perfume? I'm like, it's called CNN and Fox all mixed together. <laughs> oh God.
2: That is not a, a good no.
1: perfume.
4: It's, mo- it's like Dracar Noir. It's not good. It's a little <laughs> gross. You have to watch your drink when you have it on. No, I get it. No, that's, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, look, you do it for your show and, and I'll do it for your show. But it's so good to be here. I'm glad that you're still doing your show, albeit all the way from Greece, the mother country. Yes, the, the mother of democracy, the birthplace of the Olympics, because this is the day that the Olympics
1: launch. I, sh- I guess we should talk about that, sort of. Um, yeah, the Olympics start today, guys. Turns out the Olympics are kind of effed up. I don't know if you guys realized it super these stories are coming out uh yeah but i i i I don't want to talk about the olympics uh, at least yet i feel like we have a lot of time to do so also side note i just have to share because like i had a reaction just now this is very grease a cat just jumped off of a ledge like in a very aggressive way off a tree onto a ledge into my windowsill so if you saw me go like this it's because a adorable just jumped yeah um all right so Something did happen in Greece uh, that I talked about at the top of the show. And I after the show on Wednesday, I stumbled upon a protest by anti-vaxxers who call themselves um, folks who want who want the freedom to choose. Mm. And a lot of these folks are affiliated with the far, far, far right in Greece. Um, you know, members of the Golden Dawn Party who were. uh Imprisoned. They were tried. They were the first right wing party to be tried and convicted of um, murder. They have been organizing with members of the Greek Orthodox Church and other uh, right wing like unions because it's really complicated in Europe. Mm -hmm. And they're pushing back against what I would and you would consider the far right wing government and saying that the far right wing government here is communist because they're trying to enforce. Vaccines among some public employees,
4: nurses.
1: <laughs> oh, right. Nurses. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So the state of the world right now is like a total disaster post, um, you know, we're, we're like undergoing the apocalypse, obviously.
4: It's almost worse, too, because it doesn't feel like we're quite out of it, you know? And I think yeah. there is a sort of cavalier egoism when it comes to being a human on this planet in the year 2021, especially. And, uh, you know, in, in Western Europe and in United States, in North America, just being like, well, it's got to be over. Um, can I order it on Amazon for for the pandemic to be over? And it's like, no, actually, it is going to continue uh, unless we fundamentally change. I mean, this is it feels like a wake up call. It feels like sort of a, a World War Three with with out. Um, Just the amount of bloodshed and terrifying horribleness, you know, like there's there is a lot of loss of life, but at least we're not like demonizing a population except for Chinese, of course. Okay, let me let me backtrack on this. But the point is, is like it is it's like, you know, there is an angst. And I think the right is so good at capitalizing on that fear and anger uh, that I think we all have. Uh, and trying to radicalize people to their side. The other thing I was going to say, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I've been totally struck by, yeah, you know, you draw the lines between the far right in Greece and then the far right in the United States. And I think it it goes throughout the world. And you see the ways that like very almost very anti-democratic, illiberal, if you will, um, st- uh, political trends are dovetailing with these, this anti-vax movement, which really is an anti-science movement, which really is a, a Christian nationalist movement or, or, or a religious, in, in the case of India, right? A Hindu nationalist movement, but a religious driven movement um, that, that lends itself to fascism and authoritarianism. And so we, you see how we're like, oh man, are we like on the precipice of the dark ages? Like is that, b- except we have the science. You know, so it does at once. It's it's scary because I see in the in the U.S., you know, here in L.A., we've had all these anti-trans protests that have also been dovetailing with anti-vax protests, with a, which are dovetailing with QAnon and under the rubric of like, save the children. Right. Which is really just a hateful anti-trans slogan. They don't actually care about pedophiles. Look at the Republican Party or, you know, anybody. Um So, but it is interesting because you're like, why is this happening? And you're like, oh yeah, because we are moving toward this like very dark ages, very top down, um, right, far right extremism that is attractive when people are scared and also really susceptible to othering immigrants, women, trans people, et cetera.
1: You know, I, I was at this conference last week, uh, in Greece and it was a, I would say anything from the far left to um, the left wing of the center left parties of some countries, because obviously every single country is different. I just have to reinforce this. You can't compare, you know, the center left and one European country to the center left in the sure. United States sure. to the point where everyone I spoke to was a Bernie supporter. So let's just make that very clear. <laughs> that
3: makes it
4: simple Um, because it's Europe. How do they but- fight online? They must have amazing online fights then. Oh no no no! It's insane. It's in the, in the, no, but they're they're actually clear. They're very
1: clear about who they're fighting. They're, I will say, it's not as aggressive. You know, sure. All with 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 all of the parties. I'll, I'll just use Greece as an example. There's like 16 left parties, and well, they don't come together as a coalition. You know, I think they're pretty clear that the Golden Dawn is like the bad guy, like right. the the far right Mitsotakis is the bad guy. Like they're they're very clear on who the enemy is. Um, not every country's like that, and and not every party's like that, and but what you do see is there. Are the center left parties, I would say the the parties, the neoliberal parties, the folks to or the neoliberal leadership in center left parties, mm-hmm. whether it's labor, where obviously there's a divide in labor between the far left, the, the, the socialist left, the more traditional socialist left and the neoliberal uh, left. There's there's been that divide in, in the UK, which I think a lot of folks are much more fluent in um, or other countries. You know, here it's PASOK that's dying in Greece um, or in Puerto Rico. It's the. Um, populares who were in power and now there's new forces coming into kind of challenge on the left in different forms. But oftentimes you'll see some of these new parties on the left will garner some support from a populist right or try to mm-hmm. pull support sure. from a populist right, which is not a normal, right? It's like when Bernie Sanders said, okay, I can appeal to a Trump voter in the general election,
4: not yeah. the
1: same situation entirely, but on the alternative side, the media is where it gets really confusing. And Joe Biden, obviously won. the Democratic Party is extremely um, sophisticated because they control their own primaries. So the establishment can control a little bit more so, but there are complaints that Joe Biden is not doing enough to counter the misinformation and, and the disinformation that has been spreading, whether it's in our own country or globally. And, and it doesn't happen as you know so well, doesn't happen organically it is a created devised orchestrated well-funded mechanism and the right wing works with each other internationally yeah and so it's how the protesters in syntagma square were blaming china and funny the protesters in arizona are blaming china um and you know don't believe in the science and think that the government's authoritarian for forcing a vaccine so i mean what could a biden administration really like you and offline, we talk about these things a lot. What could they potentially do? What are some first steps? What are some ideas? What are some
4: what I mean, I understand? I have to say that I'm not convinced they're not doing it, especially when it comes to vaccine reticence in like black and brown communities that have been, you know, historically targeted and and, mis- and lied to when it comes to healthcare. But I do, so I do think that like the right freaked out when Biden was like, we're going to go door to door. You know, but that is what needs to happen. There needs to be more coordination, you know, between local doctors, neighborhood doctors, if those even exist anymore. But so I'm not convinced we're not seeing some of the rollout specifically among those kinds of populations, which is great. The other thing, though, I'd say is that. It's a what a just what a wasted gift getting the vaccine early, first and plentiful, uh, was when you have no mechanism for enforcement whatsoever. And I don't mean making sure people have been vaccinated. I mean, making sure that businesses like restaurants and bars, um, like, you know, yoga studios, uh, which is a whole other thing, but that they are enforcing a vaccine card, right? Suddenly that's trampling on our freedom. But the problem is, is that there needs to be some kind of incentive yes, there are government campaigns. I've seen a few ads. I was like, okay, that's kind of cute. It's like people partying, having fun. And then it's like get vaccinated. Yeah. But if you can still, if businesses are not enforcing anything, and if there's not assistance for them to enforce that, or, you know, whether I I mean, God, I don't want to give the cops another job. Let's be real. But if there is not incentive for people to get vaccinated, they will not be vaccinated. That's just it. Like, like that, all so, the, like tax breaks. I mean, I'm just that's could, usually what they're. I don't know. Are. I mean, yeah, there could be there could be tax breaks for enforcement if businesses do enforce, um, funds to help them do that, extra loans if they're doing it right, um, and and you because there needs to be a signal to the unvaccinated community that look, you don't get the same rights and privileges. Let's be real, because you could be spreading this ban- this virus. And people do need to work and people do need to go out and like eat and whatever and socialize. That is part of our our economy. That's part of our sanity. But part of our safety is that you get vaccinated. And businesses are so scared, rightfully so, because they don't, you know, they want all the business they can get. They don't want another thing to do. I get that. But um, that is, I mean, to me, that's my only solution. And I know people are like, well, we're, we're like, even people on the left, we're so obsessed with this idea of independence and freedom. And even we flirt with a little libertarianism and I'm like, yeah, except that's, that, that's how we all die. You know, that's, that is, that's also why we turn around and say, well, your healthcare is your responsibility. And it's like, I, it's a slippery slope. There's, there's both, you know, and I, I think on the other hand, like on the other hand, I also think that like it's so funny that the far right is all about personal responsibility. Oh, if you die, it's your fault. If you're un- homeless and unhoused, it's your fault. Um, and then, and they apply it even to this of like personal responsibility, except they move in the opposite direction. It's Like actually personal responsibility. Cause at this point I do start, I'm starting to believe in personal responsibility too. I'm like, yeah, it's your responsibility to get vaccinated. But you know, they like, they're like, no, no, no. That means you can die. That's fine. You can die. Last thing I'll say is that Joe Biden did have a town hall and openly said, "If you're vaccinated, you won't get COVID," uh, not, uh, which was fact checked by the CNN. <laughs> not true. Yeah, like literally that day. How many breakthrough infections were there? Not true. It will prevent you from going to the hospital. It'll prevent you from extreme side of you know from extreme uh, uh, symptoms and prevent you from death. That's pretty damn worth it. But man, why is why is the president saying that kind of stuff? Right. Oh, and I think, I think, you know, well, there's lots
1: of reasons you might be, oh <laughs> but, but with that being said, you are less likely to transmit the disease. If you are not, if your symptoms are not so overt, so perhaps giving, you know, just give him a little grain of salt. Like, sure.
4: I mean, maybe I, I, look, that's where I think, going. I think that he, he's not the greatest spokesperson for his own, you know, campaigns and his own rollouts. It's like, you think, I mean, that's why we're Literally his like entire campaign was like weekend at Bernie's, you know, like let us all breathe life into this, you know, let's be real sort of sundowning old man and make it happen. And we did. And now that he's there, it's like, oh, okay, it's still Biden. We uh, he still needs people to help uphold his administration. You know, uh, Dr. Fauci is too busy being investigated now by
1: whatever they're doing, like the next Benghazi. And this is, but this is ultimately it. Like when, when I, when I ask about misinformation, it's not just misinformation and disinformation about the vaccine. It's this. There's an ecosystem that's been building for a long time, yeah. and it's really brewing in. It's in our faces. Whether it's I don't even want to have a conversation about denying climate change. Like enough, Democrats need to stop being like countering whether or not climate change exists. Sure, sure, it's here. It's here. It's been here. I mean, it was here ten years ago. It was here during Hurricane Katrina. It was we, we know it was the, the, the tsunami. It's been going on for a while, obviously. So. It's at such, such a crisis level, it's so in your face right now, mm-hmm. and it has been in your face right now that I worry that the administration, I mean, they, I, I personally feel they need to set up some sort of commission to discuss this, not in a McCarthyist way, because I know that's where everybody's going to go, all the, the, the trolls are going to say it. But the reality is, is that there's a lot of money flowing into these spaces, whether it's Steve Bannon, as I talked about at the top of the show, who set up some sort of academy in Italy a few years ago to educate uh, folks on how to use the media, what kind of language to use, to blame China for everything. Um, this is not organic, as I said. So I started this, this question, this topic off with a failing center left in that they still have the, the, the levers of power. And it's mm-hmm. like, you actually could use this and your power to do something significant,
4: but you're too busy kicking us down that you're not yeah. even you know, taking this moment seriously. And, and I mean, to be uh, fair, a little bit fair, like I don't think Olivia Rodrigo was like the worst idea they've ever had. You know, like bringing like a pop star in to be like, yeah, I get it. I look cute anyway, like not the worst idea. But that being said, I, you know, as someone who's worked on the internet for however long I have, I know people's attention spans are zilch, especially when it comes to like explaining any, anything like how a virus works, how the Delta variant is a thousand times more transmissible and how it like does different things in your body. Like, you know, even I was watching infographics and animations early in the pandemic being like, wait a minute, what is this? We need that every day. Like every day, you know, it should, shouldn't be Fauci. It really should just be an infographic from the CDC explaining exactly how it works. Use little animations. Uh, Mucinex has sold many, many boxes of that stuff because of their, you know, little like, I'm a piece of mucus, man. Do that. (laughs) Like, seriously, this is like the level that we're at. That's how most people absorb information. Uh, They need it broken down to them. You need a little magic school bus over and over and over and over and over again. Um, And yeah, it's not, as much as I like to say press briefings and CDC briefings and Fauci briefings are going to do it, it won't. Because no one's breaking it down for them. People don't read the New York Times every day, you know, as if that is the place you should, the thing you should be reading. But like articles are hard, you know? I will say that like, it's good that they're sort of going after Facebook very, very symbolically. I think this is a administration that got a lot of money from big tech. They're not enemies of big tech. But you also have Lena Khan, um now being the uh, the chair of the, is it FEC, right? Or uh, yeah. Um, FCC, FCC. Yeah. That one. And, you know, elections commission, right. Communications, commission. federal communications. I thought it was the, I thought it was the
1: other FE FEC is the one that does the money for the right. campaigns, the money right. in the campaigns thing.
4: That's right. Any, but proper. so having someone like Lena Khan is really important. And also just having these public, public, um, spats with Facebook, I think is good. Yeah, they haven't taken down any. I mean, Facebook needs to be nationalized. Let's get over ourselves at this point. And that's his biggest fear. I mean, that book that came out uh, recently or is coming out this week or something about uh, Mark Zuckerberg, his
1: biggest fear was the nationalization of Facebook. But Facebook is just one piece. I mean, you and I both know in this ecosystem, there is yeah. there is an algorithmic advantage to being a white man taking on on women, which overlaps with, which overlaps with, the strategy of the fascist right and the messaging strategy—so much of this stuff has been like leaked and examined and researched at this point that it's not even worth, you know, diving into. But all of these, you know, there's a reason why the Christian right <laughs> wants to go after women's rights. There's a reason why the Christian right is denying science. There's a reason why now much of the Christian right is saying, you know, don't get your vaccine. Get it? Yeah. It's it's power. It's a power structure. It's it, 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 th- th- there's nothing new. This has been going on for years. Um, so much so that, as Brad says, our producer says, during smallpox in the 1910s, travelers needed to show one of three things, a vaccination certificate, a properly scarred arm or a pitted face, which indicated that they had survived smallpox. So that mm. was their vaccine passport. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure we've all seen these these memes and things that are in blogs that are out uh, talking about how, you know, when smallpox mm-hmm. happened or the pandemic of, of the nineteen 19- you know, 1920s, um, there were anti-vaxxers, but misinformation is spreading at a time. And and as it did in the twenties, when fascism is on the rise, when there are right-wing governor governments that are taking power and, uh, but we also have climate change. So.
4: Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's look, as someone who early in, like, you know, when I was being politicized in like the early 2000s, who was lamenting the lack of alternative media, you know, it's like, you know the the concentration of media is incredibly problematic for a f- healthy functioning democracy. The over democratization of information also seems to be a problem for a healthy functioning democracy. Like, meaning I, mean, I can't counter that though because yeah. it's not it's not really
1: democratized. People can True. respond in a democratized way, but the algorithms are not democratic.
4: Like yes. you and I both yeah. know. Yeah, no, these platforms yeah, they target, we know which communities and people they target. We know the kinds of things they lift up. And we also know that, you know, actual fake news travels at something like 400 times the rate as regular fake news. I mean, regular news. So what are you, you know, how are you even going to like, it's difficult to get the truth out generally. Um, You know, it is, it's a broader problem. Like you're, we're never, and that's the thing is like these dark ages, are gonna come like this is. It's part of that agenda. It's part of you know. It's amazing the way that Trump was this Trojan horse for Mitch McConnell and Republicans and their agenda, tax breaks, blah 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 blah. But Trumpism is this broader populist horse for like, like QAnon, you know, right? Broader populist horse for whatever next cult is on the docket, like. And you could substitute any far right Christian nationalism loves this stuff. And, and, and not uh, hashtag, not all Christians. I mean, seriously, this is, is a moment for Christians and religious people to stand up and actually break away from the Republican party. It's something I do believe in or break away from, you know, whatever this, a lot of folks who are bastardizing their religion in their name, but it, it is, but it's just like, it's amazing. Like you, cre- you, you break people down, you create supple, supple minds. you, inscribe them into a cult of MAGA and then you can pretty much swap out MAGA for anything, anti-vax, QAnon, wherever you want to go with that. Um, and it will work and you will control people. It's brilliant. Um, you know, even the Pope can't
1: take them on. That's, that's, sure. uh, you know, producer Brad says the Pope is not able to, to bring everybody else in line because of course there's, there's many factions. I just want to touch on one thing before we go. Um, just briefly because uh, this is Fem Friday and this is a very important thing to just reiterate over and over and reiterate to our allies. The pandemic has driven uh, women out of the workforce. 1.8 million women have dropped out of the labor force amid the pandemic and are now grappling with whether or not or how to return to work in a vastly different landscape. Uh, I think, you know, We've touched on this a lot on the show, just just how women have been staying home. They've been picking up extra duties, even if they are at home working, uh, you know, whether it's unpaid child care, unpaid house care, household work. We when you see the dark ages, I'm like, uh-huh, yeah, 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 yeah. I tweeted out a little thing just because I was feeling a little burned out the other day. Just on let's go one to ten. How burned out is everybody? I had no idea that that was going to go get such a response, such a response. And I would say the majority of the people who responded were women. Mm-hmm. Um, Unscientific, seven out of 10. Just unscientific. So I I mean, I feel like the Biden administration needs to come out, you know, whether it's a commission on this, because this is a significant part of our economy.
4: Yeah. Oh, of course. And, and it all comes back to infrastructure too. And the fact that, you know, if we're, if we're trying to pass legislation that has childcare in it, and home and better paying, uh, home care workers and more money for getting home care for your, you know, elder, elderly family members, all work that often falls on women. Um, then that has everything to do with closing this gap. I mean, that's the thing it's like, th- and this is what I really hate about, um, what I would call sort of moderate centrist feminism and, and like feminism in name only and, and sort of like taking on, you know, uh, pay equity as just your, your pet issue um, is that it's been so siloed off from the rest of the economy. It's been so siloed off from like the structural changes that actually need to happen to, you know, to actually serve people and especially working women. And now you can't run from it anymore. Now you can't have it be a pet issue. Now it can't just be like, well, we need to close the pay gap. And yeah, that's my thing. It's like the pay gap is like worse than ever. Like the pay gap is, Slipping and slipping and slipping, you know, and, and we know that it disproportionately affects black and brown women, of course. Um, but now it's not just your pet issue. It's linked to everything. It, it, it's linked to everything like childcare and home care and workers' rights and union rights and the right to time off and the right to sick leave, you know, and a $15 slash $20 minimum wage. All of those things are linked. And so I do think it is a wake up call of some feminists and organizations to say, Ooh, we got to go much harder on this because this economy is leaving women behind and it doesn't seem like anyone is taking the action to, to make sure that this doesn't get worse. The frustration I have is that we continue fighting the same fight for decades and don't adjust them to the
1: moment because as you're continuing to fight the same fight, whether it's a $15 minimum wage that started over 10 years ago, mm-hmm. or, you know, equal pay for instance, which you know, the, the, or ERA, like this is something that's very complicated and divisive, even in the feminist movement. But that is a, that is a fight that we've been having since the seventies. We have not adjusted it to the crises of the moment. The right just keeps adjusting as they go. And we, as a feminist movement, um, you know, this is why solidarity matters, but Also look at Amazon, for instance, how many, what percentage of the workforce at Amazon is female and women of color. And they just uh, basically worked their asses off. So a giant penis face, Botox penis face and a penis device Mm -hmm. could go to space and just like measure his penis up against three other penises or two (laughs) other penises.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Just a collection of dicks. Yeah. That's really what it was. I mean, and, and what a slap in the face it's, I think. No, I, I, I think just the, I, I could talk forever about what was going on with all the billionaire space race. Set aside whether or not there's scientific research. I doubt, I know I've been looking into that. Not even that amazing. Um, second, set aside whether or not we should go to space. Look at when this is happening. What a slap in the face. What, what salt in the wounds of working people that this is happening In the midst, still in the midst of a pandemic, still when people are being kicked off their unemployment, are unable to find work, are you know struggling to take care of their children at home, like it is egregious. It should be a crime. And 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 the record money that I mean, Bezos has made right in the pandemic. He he became a trillionaire in the pandemic. So, like, at what point do we revolt? I mean, this is so funny. Yeah, no, exactly. Oh God, don't even. ooh, don't get me started, Omiki? No, no, but like it is. It is like if we are not rising up now, because <laughs> <laughs> no one seems to have a problem with this, right? The media doesn't have a problem yes. covering it. Businesses seem to not have a problem with it, obviously. So who's gonna speak on our behalf? This is ultimately it. I'm. I'm. I think like
1: I'm having little mental cracks like you know when you get um all due respect to anybody who's had a stroke before but I've had family members who've had strokes and you have like these little mini sometimes you have little mini strokes I feel like I'm having little mini like mental break every single show I'm just like (laughs) what is it gonna take what is it I don't have anything else to say guys I am sorry this is a show about building I'm having guests on and I just ask them the same question what is it going to take yeah really and that's it Francesca you're the best
4: No, likewise. No, Miki. Thank you so much for having me and always good to be on your show. Enjoy your coffee. Cheers. Cheers. Appreciate you. <laughs> How do you say cheers in Greek? Uh, yamas. Yamas. To good health, which is really important right now. <laughs> Very important. Take care. Right. Take care. Thanks, for Francesca. All right.
1: We will be right back with our fabulous panel. We have Jamie Peck and Alex Press on today. It's Fun Friday. You love it. Share. Far and wide, make sure to uh join us on patreon.com/slash the Nomi Key Show because here's a fun fact: women run shows, solely women run shows. Like Francesca is one of the few women I know that hosts her own show as a woman. No other, no, no male sidekick, no corporate backing, very important. She does it on her own. I do it. Well, I host the show on our, but we have a team, obviously, and so does she. But it is hard work and there is actual sexism in the algorithm. And, you know, both Francesca and I have a lot of experience in media, a lot. So it really makes a difference when you guys become patrons, huge difference. Uh, And there is a huge disparity between women-run shows and male-led shows, women-hosted shows and male-hosted shows. So think about that and share it with your friends. Um, Of course, that's if you enjoy the show. So thank you to everybody who's already a patron, but you can join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show at all different levels. You can get the swag, you can get extras. And uh, if you're not already, make sure to subscribe and like and share the show with your friends and family and social media and all that stuff. All right, we'll be right back with Jamie Pack and Press. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. We have some breaking news. Brad has informed me that he's happy to wear a dress if it Helps the show out. I guess he's like the Harry Styles of our show. I'm, you know, people. He said he's open to it. I'm, I'm open to wearing pants. I'm wearing a dress Dresses dress really comfortable. That is the one thing I gotta say. Like, I feel like people don't understand just how freeing a dress is. And maybe they do understand it. I, whatever. It's it's gender non-specific. So literally, do whatever you want to do. I don't care. We don't care. Paint your nails. Don't paint your nails. Dye your hair. Don't dye your hair. Get Botox, don't get Botox, whatever everybody's fighting over on the internet, I don't care. Um, so Brad, be you, just be you, Do whatever you want. And he also says vasectomies are mandatory. So this is like our test situation. I'm going to wait until this little round of right wing dies out before we force the vasectomies. Because that's what I'm running for for president in 2028. Vasectomies for all. They'll be free too just like vaccines. Yes. All right. Uh, I guess you guys, a a nice way to ease into that is to talk about my addiction to CBD, but only some type of CBD. There's only a specific CBD that I use. I am a loyal, oops, just knocked something over. Uh, I am a loyal Sunset Lake CBD user because Sunset Lake CBD is incredible. They're craft farmer owned company. Uh, they ship their craft CBD from their farm in Vermont to your door. It's high quality. I'll tell you all about it in a second, but I want you guys to understand first that they have all types of products. They have gummies, they have salves, they have coffee, coffee CBD that my mom loves. She's addicted to. There's tinctures, which is what I use to go to sleep every night. I put it in my water. I put it in my tea. I mix it with some ginger, uh, ginger juice that I squeeze. I I got a whole thing. I like create a whole concoction. I'll do like CBD cocktails, but not really with alcohol, just like some sparkling water, some ginger, some lemon, and some CBD. I have recipes. Maybe I should come out with recipes. That could be a thing. Um, but when you support Sunset Lake CBD, you are supporting sustainable agriculture, and you are supporting a farm that they converted uh, from a, a Ben & Jerry's. They're the, the ice cream of the moment right now. Uh, ben & Jerry's farm, not a Haagen-Dazs farm, which is, by the way, the opposite of Ben & Jerry's. Google that. So they they were able to, um, I'll say flip, and they say diversify uh, from a dairy farm to a premium hemp farm. And when you support Sunset Lake CBD, you are supporting sustainable agriculture that is enhancing rural communities that have been ignored by our government, as we know so well. Uh, they also pay their workers a minimum wage of $15 an hour and their workers, they support Uh, they own the majority of their company while supporting media like The Nomiki Show, The David Pakman Show, and The Majority Report. I know I talk about them all the time. I really do use their products. I really do use the tinctures. I really do eat the gummies occasionally because I don't want to eat so much sugar. Um, I really have loved their fudge. Uh, The dog biscuits, you can eat them with your dog or your cat. I don't know if your cats are into, I don't know what other animals eat peanut butter, but I know humans like peanut butter and I know like dogs like peanut butter. So you can eat them together and bond if you're weird like that. Um, Or you can just eat them like Sam Cedar does on his own. But they have all sorts of products. Uh, I really love their salve as well. I use it on my arm all the time. I have like a little bit of a thing on my arm, as I've discussed. It is incredible. I also put it under my nose when I do yoga. It's like very aromatic. Um, Incredible product. I'm not joking. There's other CBD out there that I've tried that sucks. Sunset Lake CBD is the best. If you go to sunsetlakecbd.com today, you will get 20% off of your entire order, 20% off if you type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, go to sunsetlakecbd.com and type in Nomi. That is that. All right, everybody, we'll be right back with our amazing panel. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Jamie Peck is the co-host of the Antipoda podcast. And Alex Press is here. She's a staff writer at Jacobin and she has a piece out right now. That's getting a lot of buzz uh, titled Frito-Lay workers are on strike for their lives. It appeared in Jacobin on July 19th. Thanks for joining us for fun Friday.
3: Thanks so much for having me. Anytime.
1: <laughs> All right. So Alex, mm-hmm. what's happening over at Frito-Lay? Yeah. Uh, how have folks been organizing the strike? Like what, did, what, what, what level did it need to get to for this to happen?
3: Yeah. So things are really, really bad at this Frito-Lay production plan in Topeka, Kansas. So, you know, there have been an increasing number of strikes, but this one, I think really caught people's attention because of the conditions that the workers are dealing with. So some of the workers are working 84 hour weeks, that's seven days a week, 12 hour days. Um, Some of them haven't had a day off in five months, including weekends. So again, every single day for five months at a really grueling job, right? This is not a luxury kind of like white collar work that you're doing every day. I mean, the result is shocking. So people at the shop talk about suicides. They talk about divorces. It's very clear when you talk to the workers that this like domestic unrest is a huge part of the stress. It's just, you know, families, kids, spouses. If you're partner is never there because they're working 12 hour days for five months, You know, your marriage falls apart very quickly. Um, and so there's a lot of stress and strain and worries. There've also been heart attacks on the assembly line with some workers accusing the company of having told them to basically move the body and keep going. Obviously Frito-Lay is denying that. Um, and just to get a sense you know, in short of what's going on, the shifts that they work currently, they call them suicides. And I described in the article what that is. So this is where you come in for eight hours for your regular shift, but then you're forced to work another four hours and then you're called in four hours early for your next shift. So you have exactly eight hours in between. So you've worked 12, you have eight hours before going back to work another 12. So the fact that they're called suicides, I think speaks for itself. The company sent a letter to all of the workers recently saying that's not what they're called. Don't call them that. Um, And one worker I spoke to said, we'd never heard of the term that the company is using. They're called suicides. That's what everyone calls them. Um. So that's the reason for the strike. So,
4: okay.
3: So many questions here. Um, first question is like,
1: why? Has this been going on for a while at this rate, or or is this like a, a pandemic? Like, is there more demand for for pa- potato chips or whatever? There. Why?
3: Why now? Yeah. So it has gotten a lot worse during the pandemic. So Frito-Lay has seen like a huge growth in sales as people are staying home, eating a lot of fatty foods, you know, sort of eating our feelings as it it were. Um, And the people in the plant say that production has been cranked way up. So they said that they're used to working like, you know, a lot more, having more demand on them around the Super Bowl, around holidays, but that now that pace is year round And that Frito-Lay hasn't responded to any of this by like hiring more people or building out production facilities elsewhere. They say that they're producing chips for other regions of the country that they shouldn't be because Frito-Lay isn't staffing adequately elsewhere either. So they say that they're basically being pushed to the limit and that the pandemic totally intensified this, right? It, It boosted demand. And also they got to see that their managers could stay home they weren't at risk in the plant, whereas the workers had to keep coming into this place as coronavirus you know, outbreaks happened on the shop floor. And so all of this, as with so many other companies during the past year, has just taken grievances that already existed and intensified them to the point that workers just can't take it anymore.
1: Do we have a situation like Jeff Bezos where like the CEO or, or owner of, I don't know how they're, they structure themselves at Frito Alley, I assume they're publicly traded, Um they're just that the, the, the CEOs are making way more money than ever or the profits are just so much higher and it's not
3: being constant. Why not hire more people? This is insane. This is a human rights violation. Yeah, totally. I mean, so Frito-Lay is part of PepsiCo and stocks are way up for Pepsi. They have seen huge revenue. Again, similar thing. Frito is part of that increased revenue, but also it's other parts of the company as well. So, yeah, people at the top are making way more money. But at the end of the day, like companies don't want to adequately staff, right? Because that includes huge outlays of new costs for every new worker, right? There are certain benefits around. At the plant in Topeka, the workers talk about how there's high turnover, which is true at a lot of other places. Like I read a lot about Amazon and and their high turnover is a big thing. And the reason for that, again, is that especially this plant, because they actually do have a union, which we can talk about. You know, if you keep workers that have seniority, you're going to pay them more. They're going to have more benefits. They're going to have more confidence in demanding their rights on the shop floor. But if you just make it so bad that people keep leaving and then you can just bring in new people, you start those people at a lower wage and they don't know their rights. And so this is a cost saving measure. And that's what the workers say that they feel the Frito-Lay is doing, that they're constantly trying to get people out the door and have new people come in who will start at a lower rate. Um, Just a quick question, and and, and I'd love to hear Jamie's thoughts. When did they unionize? So they've been union for something like 50 years now. Um, And there's a lot of, there's some internal tensions, right? Because how did it get to this point? How did it get this bad if you have a union? And so their local 218 of the Baker's Union, um, BCGTM, and their local has had sort of new leadership that's a little more willing to fight. Um, So this is part of how it gets to a strike now. But it's worth noting that, you know, there were previous contract offers in this negotiation and the workers voted them down again and again. So at this point, it's the workers on the shop floor who are pushing for better conditions. And I think local leadership is fighting and there's some tension about whether the international is supporting them in that way.
1: Okay. So that's that's really teachable, a great teachable moment because we're seeing um, obviously record increase in, in union membership um, and organizing uh, across the country. And, and, and Jamie, you know, feel free to chime in and talk about this, but there is this infrastructure, as Alex, you've mentioned on the show before, of, you know, leadership that is still kind of conditioned by, like, the neoliberal power structures and, and you know, many who do not come from the shop floors, who are not workers, who are professionalized uh, union leaders. So, you know, Jamie, as a DSA member, as as somebody who's active in this, and do you feel that DSA and labor workers are doing enough. I mean, meaning when I say enough, I mean, moving at the rate needed to, based on just this this extraordinary set of circumstances that uh, workers are facing across the spectrum, um, given the pandemic and and the economy collapsing.
0: You know, honestly, I'm not on the Labor Committee, uh, so I don't want to comment on something that I am not an expert on. I know whenever a big high-profile strike action happens, um, DSA members are there and scrambling to go support the workers on the picket line. Um, We saw it in Hunt's point. Um, I mean, unfortunately, if we don't have any DSA members working there, there's only so much that we could do because these, the more successful organizing drives all come organically from the workers themselves. So unless we had somebody actually working in the factory or salting, as they say in the biz, uh, (laughs) our our role would be limited to a support role.
3: The thing about this plan is there are DSA members there.
0: So, well, um, that's great. Yeah,
3: I think often people assume there are not. But in fact, when you see sort of a revival of a local, these days it's either, you know, it's somewhat, there are militants, whether they're DSA or not, obviously is a question, but, you know, I won't go into it because I don't think they're particularly public about it, but it's the left is there. And that's part of why people are voting down contracts and pushing was, for better conditions. Do you think it's happening enough? I mean, is do, do you think that leadership, obviously we're
1: generalizing here, but um, whether it's like RWDSU, you know, showing up, Uh, in Bessemer and supporting (laughs) the organizing there, but there was, you know, pushback later and criticism later, but why, why Bessemer not Staten Island where RWDSU is, is based in New York. And it's a little bit possibly easier. I'm just one criticism. Um, You know, can can you kind of like maybe explain some of these dynamics between leadership and how they choose where to organize, where they support and and why, and, you know, what the movement is like in, internally, in, in different states, obviously. Yeah. I mean, Kentucky is not necessarily a, uh, <laughs> like a, to be synonymous, like left-leaning, you know, DSA, like stronghold, but
3: yeah, I mean, it's very complicated, right? Like are they doing enough? Are we doing enough? I don't know what that means exactly. Right. Because people are doing what they can. And there are obviously fights being had about people who say don't want to take risks or don't want to take on new organizing. There are discussions about whether it's more important to quote unquote service a local, which means, you know, sort of like handling grievances, keeping up the conditions on the shop floor versus using those conditions to go help organize new shops. But at the end of the day, like you see the outcome of that from the outside, but the inside is tons of all sorts of random people who are just sort of militant workers trying to push for change, right? And so, no, it's not happening enough. I want us to destroy the state. That hasn't happened. Um, So, of course not. But at the same time, like, these efforts are a sign of that foment internally. Um, But it's, to your point, every one of these situations you sort of have to look at, you know, uniquely. Like, RWDSU, as we've talked about before, you know, it's not that they came to Alabama. They have huge representation in that state in the Mid-South Council and the workers came to them. They also were organizing at that Staten Island facility in New York. So these unions are doing these things. You just don't see it because it's not public because companies are so prone to retaliating against people for organizing. So I just take it as a case-by-case basis. But yes, we always need more militants. We always need more people fighting for better conditions, both, you know, in the union leadership and on the shop floor.
1: Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because uh, <laughs> the anti-vaxxers are basically going to kill us all before climate change does. So let's talk about
0: this a little bit. Um, Wait, can I just add yeah, one? Go ahead, go ahead, Jamie. Of course. Can I just add one uh, plug? Really a timeless plug. Um, <laughs> if you want to learn about why the bosses would make the same workers work longer hours rather than Hire more workers guess who talks about that Daddy Marx it's all here, baby. I just read this part it's pretty great so if you want to understand uh, a really insane system and why these people would be behaving it's such a blatantly antisocial way, check it out and check out my new show Everybody loves communism where we read leftist theories so you don't have to: I did not know about
1: this when does that air and where does it air?
0: It's on fans.fm slash everybody loves communism. We're trying to put them out every week. It's very new, so it's a little sporadic right now, but we've got two episodes out already um, one on the Communist Manifesto and one on the critique of the Gotha program by Daddy Marx. And um, each episode in true nerd fashion is like two or three parts because we like to bring in a guest for a deeper discussion. Of the thing that we're talking about, so not to turn this into self self-promotion hour, but uh
3: i'll I'll save you, Jamie by saying that there is a great passage in capital. this is a classic thing I would say on a on a show, but about overwork and underwork, right? Because often we so think of these as separate things. like some part of the working class is overworked, like these workers in Topeka, they have to work 80 hours a week or at least 60 hours a week, you know, totally unfathomable. And then there's another part of the working class that can't get a job at all. And we sort of pit these against each other, like their demands are different, but in fact, they're incredibly tied. And yeah, I mean, in Capital Marks sort of lays out how this is two sides of the same coin, right? You have a class that is kept out of employment to keep disciplining the workers who have employment to accept worse and worse conditions. And ditto sort of the opposite effect of these two sides sort of being served to pressure each other, um, when in fact, they're both struggling under the, you know, lash of the boss. And so they have the Mm -hmm. same enemy, but so often are pitted against each other. And that's exactly what's happening in Topeka. I mean, there are unemployed people in this country who might look at someone saying, I have too much work and might feel resentful. But in fact, the fact that the employer can decide who has a job, who doesn't, and what kind of working conditions they have to put up with, that is the problem. It's a problem of control. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and then we get into talking about what you do with these relative surplus populations, these people who are kept out of work and used to discipline the existing labor force. Um, it's not hard to see how that ties into the prison industrial complex and the purpose that that serves in capitalism. Meaning
1: uh, unpaid labor or very, very low paid labor.
0: Um, Yeah. And and as a means of sort of both warehousing these populations and actively recreating and maintaining them as a population Mm -hmm. Um, to say nothing of the slave labor that goes on in prison. But yeah, you got to do something with them. Right. And then we have neoliberal ideology that says, hey, it's your own fault as an individual. If you're in jail, you fucked up like They don't want you to look at the systemic factors.
3: We actually saw this really interestingly play out, well, in an incredibly depressing way in Bessemer, in that there's a jail near the Amazon warehouse there. And there were some reporting talked about how people who were just out of, um, who had just been released, who were having trouble getting jobs because they had records, were then being recruited to work as extremely temporary workers at Amazon who weren't eligible for the union and were being sort of told to wear vote no swag and otherwise sort of argue against the union on the shop floor. So the way these groups are divided and then pitted against each other, I think was made incredibly concrete in that struggle.
1: And are we also seeing this? I, I you know, I doing work in Puerto Rico on this documentary and um, they just privatized the power grid there. Um, it used to be PREPA was the public uh, utility for power utility and without going to the nuances everything. Basically, the Puerto Rican legislature, they can't agree on anything, but they could agree on not privatizing it. But there's a fiscal control board who was like, so cute, we're still going to privatize you. But what they did was um, they brought in uh, labor, organized labor from IBW in Florida, Northern Florida, because it's a right to work state to come Mm -hmm. in and disrupt any organizing, basically union bust. It was a lot of pushback in between, but
3: this is like a new tactic too, right? I, I mean, I don't know the details of what you're describing, but I wouldn't call it new. No. I okay. mean, this is always the divisions with it amongst workers, both union and non-union, black and white, Latino, you know, native born, whatever we want to talk about, have always been mobilized by the bosses. And it's really a matter of like, can you get union leadership to see that or not? There's um, there's someone who actually just passed away recently, who is a, a leader, a woman, a Latino woman in the aisle, the garment workers union. And she was like one of the first people, for example, in her union to get people to accept that undocumented workers actually had to be incorporated into the union fight lest they be used to undermine it. And, you know, unions in this country have a history of sort of being, taking anti-immigrant positions on the basis of like, we're looking out for our members. But in fact, the better approach, the more effective one that she championed was this idea that actually you have to organize the undocumented, right? So that they're not being used as a wedge. And so it sounds like it's sort of the inverse of that Process being played out in Puerto Rico, but it's again very similar about whether you're just looking out for your own members or you're looking out for a broader sense of what the working class is. And because it's a right to work state,
1: you know they were they were tapping into this, in a sense, lack of work in Florida. But Spanish speakers, some who actually come from Puerto Rico, some from other places, who could go there and and were busting. And it was, I mean, it was an interesting um, education. Listen, they lost. Everybody lost. Uh, sounds very depressing yes yeah at the end of the day kids shit sucks um (laughs) all right on that note i I do want to briefly talk about what's happening uh the olympics start today yay woo (laughs) Woo woohoo i'm in the birthplace of the olympics uh i actually live like in greece right now i live next door to the original stadium so i walked by it like five times today and just thought oh how far we've come (laughs) Uh, but without, I mean, on, on a previous show, we we talked about just how the Olympics have disrupted every single community that they have um, taken place in. They have unhoused people. They've disrupted economies. I mean, Greece knows this very well from 2004, um, and and so much more. I mean, all the other the, the domino effects that ha- that occur after Olympics take place. But with that being said. This is happening during a pandemic. There's a lot of heightened criticism about having the Olympics with no audience in Tokyo where uh, COVID rates are on the rise. The Delta variant is now you know, everywhere and not everybody, there, there isn't a just vaccination uh, process you know, globally. We're not equally distributing vaccines. And even if they are, there's always the folks who thinks that like the government's oppressing them for um, taking a vaccine. Which gets me to the Americans, because a hundred, at least a hundred American athletes have disclosed that they have not taken the vaccine, whereas I had to take a vaccine to get on a plane to come here. And they did not. Um, this is really just an opening to discuss the state of 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 our vaccination process and like what it's going to take. Why? I mean, this is obviously it's 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 still a minority, but it's it's so. We've been here before. We've been here before, but not with the same sophisticated disinformation and misinformation campaigns that are happening, weaponizing um, disinformation for political purposes that, of course, align with fascist uh, and authoritarian kind of movements and, you know, Christian right movements, far right movements. Um, so just want to open it up and, and 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 talk about this. And I feel like on the left, we don't talk about this enough, but it's like kind of a serious issue
0: <laughs> well it's interesting that you would align the anti-vaxxers with uh far-right movements because that's not necessarily the case right not or- all of them I, you're right you're right <laughs> but the information's
1: being the, the china aspect of it i let me clarify you're right you're right jamie there are definitely these like libertarian leftists there's holistic folks i'm in that community i'm aware of it but for the most part just, for the most part it is coming from the right these rallies, for instance, that are happening mm-hmm. where like right-wingers are coming and speaking and religious leaders are yeah. speaking. But globally.
0: I, so, I feel like this is more of a partisan phenomenon when you talk about it specifically as a right-wing thing, right? Because, you know, there both Democrats and Republicans engage with their guy, their leader, like uh, some kind of godlike celebrity who can do no wrong. So I think a lot of the anti-vax sentiment on the right right now has to do with the fact that this came from the Biden administration, whereas, you know, when Trump was out there touting hydroxychloroquine, they were lining up to take it. So once again, just a depressing reminder of how uh, depoliticized and wrong uh, and misled so much of the public is.
3: I mean, it, it's somewhat, t- it's totally nuts that the United States, this is even a conversation about getting vaccinated or not, like, you know, other countries. I mean, the people on the left don't talk about this that much. I think a lot of people do, but those who don't, like I certainly don't, because we tend to focus more about patent regimes and the fact that people in many other countries around the world are still being told they won't get vaccinated for like decades. I mean, that is, and the countries that are trying, that want to defy these patent um, sort of rules and regimes are afraid of being retaliated against by the big pharma companies for, say, voting to have a TRIPS waiver, for example. They're just afraid that down the line, this will make them you know, vulnerable to being punished by these companies to getting vaccines. So obviously, I, I do think that is a huge issue that we should talk about. But, you know, I, I mean, when I talk to friends in other countries, they're like, the fact that this is a culture war issue in the United States just seems to speak to something so completely untenable about how politics are playing out, where there's no substance at all. Everything is just culture. And so if something- It is is happening
1: internationally. I mean, there was a huge anti-vax, which we talked about the show um, earlier before the segment, huge anti-vax rally here with the golden dawn, like Mm -hmm. what? And then like the taxi workers and like nurses, because the the traditionally center-right government, which is actually much more far-right, decided that they were going to Uh, Mandy that nurses, public, public nurses for public uh, hospitals have to be vaccinated. What? I mean, that's their 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 outrageous, you know, pushback as they're on the streets and 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 of course the police started uh, beating folks because it's a right government. So it is happening in other countries. It's not just a U.S. thing. It's just kind of coming to play in a different way. But with that being said, my own taxi driver, as we're driving through and supporting, and he's listening to right wing media. saying that it's Biden and Mitsotakis, the the right wing government here, who are just partnering up and that Trump is the only person who can save
3: us. So Mm. it's spilling over for sure. And I would just add that there actually, I think it was in New York, there was a union that did lead a rally against mandates for for public hospital workers being vaccinated, um, which I don't know. My position on this is it's totally true that workers are split on this issue. There are plenty of union members who work in hospitals that don't want to get vaccinated. But I do think that a union leading a rally rather than simply sort of minding its business, keeping its mouth shut and trying to win people to being vaccinated is very much a mistake. Um, But yeah, you're right that this is happening everywhere.
0: This is, I mean, this is a big example of lowercase L liberalism, right? This idea of Uh, bourgeois rights individual rights are being the most important thing and it's really the state's job to uphold those and respect them because they are sacrosanct um actually guess what we live in a society and sometimes the right of the individual to uh not get vaccinated get is outweighed by the needs of the community and you know there's a lot of criticisms we could make of the Chinese government, but at the end of the day, I think in this instance, they had a much better concept of how you balance those things.
3: It is true that I do think part of this and why I sort of said it was an American phenomenon, but you're right, Nomiki, that's not just an American phenomenon, is that it comes back to this incredible individualism that's a product of to- totally lowered expectations and understanding of what like sh- solidarity and shared risk is you have people going around and saying, I have no social obligation to, you know, my fellow person at all. And that's how we get where we are. Yeah. It just
1: seems so odd. Like when you're in these European countries and and you're like, how is this when there is much more of a communal, I mean, just in the culture, forget about the government, the the culture mm -hmm. is much more communal and, and taking care of your grandparent and your, your sick loved one, but misinformation is spreading in a different way here. Um, and maybe it has to do with austerity politics and just dissatisfaction with the government here. And I mean, I can only speak on behalf of the Greeks. Yeah,
3: I am. So I am interested in. So you said that a lot of the Olympic Olympic athletes aren't vaccinated and I'm an NBA fan. And this was also true of NBA players. And people were like, how could they do this? You know, their bodies are so important. They make so much money off of being healthy. Why would I don't know, LeBron James or someone like that not get vaccinated? It's like It seems it is an interesting question that maybe is not so relevant politically, but just these are people who care so much about their bodies and want to have total control. So if there's any uncertainty about what a vaccine is going to do to you, it actually seems to make a lot more sense to me that elite athletes would have hesitancy about this because it's something entering their body that they don't have control over. So I wonder if that is at play with the American Olympic athletes.
0: I mean, there, I think there's probably a lot of things at play. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of reasons people don't trust the government. Some of those reasons are good reasons. Some of those reasons are bad reasons, right? I mean, if you want to look at the history of um, the government doing bad shit to people's bodies, um, I think Black Americans have reason to distrust the government uh, more than anybody else. So, uh, yeah, like... I, I understand it coming from certain people more than others. It's interesting you say that because uh, another aspect of the Puerto Rican, uh,
1: the pharmaceutical capital of the globe um, for much of the last, you know, 70 years, so much testing was done on Puerto Rican people and women in particular um, over the last, you know, they, they, they were doing horrible testing. Horrible, horrible testing. The Forced you know, sterilization campaigns played out there. Forced sterilization, uh, <laughs> other testing that was done by the first 50 years of government was um the governors and pretty much everybody in, in Puerto Rican government was a point where US were stateside, not Puerto Ricans. Um, some doctors who are on the cover of Time magazine, for instance, uh who, who put forward this forced sterilization process was just a racist guy. And he like would write these crazy letters to the president and other folks and, 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 you know, finally was exposed, you know, years later, but, uh, you know, on the mainland, he was deified as being like the best doctor in the world who helped end polio. But then, you know, in Puerto Rico, who's extremely racist and sexist and classist and so many different issues. I bring this up because they had at least a month ago, the highest vaccination rate or second highest vaccination on the globe. So I'm curious, like how psychologically people who are so skeptical. Of these types of programs, we're able to and willing to get the vaccinations so quickly. And maybe it's just because it's an island and islands have been, you know, in, in places where vaccines are available, even in Greece, I'll use that example again, like the islands have been getting vaccinated at a faster rate. Uh, maybe it has to do with tourism, I'm not sure. But I think all this stuff is really, it would be really interesting to look back at and see um, the causality.
3: Yeah. And I would just shout out, there was a really great essay by this wonderful writer, Jay Caspian Kang in The New Yorker, like six months ago, at least I think at this point, about how vaccination played out in the Bay Area. Um, And he looked at, you know, how did certain sort of skeptical or marginalized communities end up getting vaccinated or otherwise sort of you know, metabolized into the public health infrastructure in a way that they hadn't been previously or historically. And he just does a great job of actually just going and seeing how this is being done, what the outreach is in certain communities. Also like the role that the nursing home infrastructure plays and the state's interactions with the healthcare system. And so I would just recommend that essay as far as like one early look. But I think, I mean, a lot more has to be sort of analyzed here about what went wrong in the United States versus what went right elsewhere.
0: I mean, this is not the same thing as vaccine hesitancy per se, but I saw a survey and a pretty high percentage of unvaccinated people haven't gotten vaccinated yet because they don't think they can get days off work to deal with the side effects. And that's super real.
3: Right. Yeah. I didn't bring that up because I figured the Olympiads don't count as part of those sort of like lower wage or otherwise <laughs> less uh, free people. But that's totally right that people all constantly are saying that they would get vaccinated, but they're afraid You know, they can't get the day off and they know that there are going to be side effects. And so they might need another day off. Um, totally real this is a product of what happens when the United States gives people no rights at all to paid days off.
2: It also, I mean, makes it the <laughs>
3: it, it also, it does just make this sort of like liberal, like laughing at it, people who aren't vaccinated, who are getting sick ring incredibly distastefully, um, which I I'm seeing now as the Delta variant, you know, rises, but also like, you know, there's an uptick in general and a lot of unvaccinated people are getting serious symptoms and, um, and even dying of COVID and, Yeah, you go look at the Internet and people are laughing about it. And so often these are like, you know, low wage people of color who can't get a day off from like working in custodial service or like in a hospital. Um, So it's a big failure of empathy, really.
0: Yeah, I didn't do shit for like three days after I got vaccinated because I felt like I had the flu and I'm a podcaster with a fake job, so I can do that. But most people can't. No, hundred percent. I mean, I took, I, I did it over
1: the weekend on a Friday afternoon expecting, and then nothing happened to me, which was really weird. And kind of a sign that I'm probably not as healthy as I thought I was. But <laughs> with that being said, um, no, it is, it's exacerbating. It's, it's it's, really interesting. And this is something maybe in a few months we can, with a little bit of distance, hopefully uh, discuss at length, like how the vaccine and uh, the pandemic just exacerbated the the stress that has created these divisions of income inequality and politics of division um, at a much, much higher rate. And, and you know, as you said, Alex, with liberals uh, mocking those who aren't getting vaccinated, it'd be, it'd be really interesting with
3: a little bit of maybe data to, to look at yeah. um, and it says and hopefully learn from. And that is a good way to bring it back to the labor fights because that's exactly what we've seen there too. Is that this is really both like making things explode, you know, in different shops and restaurants and industries, but also is creating this further division among different parts of the working class. It becomes people who could stay home and people who couldn't, and that you know. The, both sides actually need each other to win fights. You know, we need unity among working class people, including white collar people. And instead, we've seen this growing divide because there's just different conditions. People are experiencing different amounts of money being saved from state benefits for people who could work from home versus those who couldn't. Um, and it's a big problem. It's, it does not bode well for the future of you know working class politics
1: great note to end on thank God. sorry <laughs> does, sorry
3: does not go well <laughs> stay
0: tuned but the anti-sex Buddy. beds that they are putting in the olympic dormitories are funny what are fun? of that.
3: i mean so is, that, is that like a labor thing too is that
1: is, is the that <laughs> way to exploit them like what are they
3: doing it's like They want to keep them from spreading the virus. Wait, so that's real,
0: Jamie. I hadn't really looked into it. I wasn't clear about whether that's really happening. I mean, I saw a story about it, unless (laughs) I'm being punked. I'm Uh pretty sure it's real. But it's funny to me because if ever there were a population of people equipped to have sex somewhere other than a bed, it's probably Olympic athletes. So I don't know what they're trying to pull there. I really do feel for the people who
3: are Olympic Olympic athletes this year. It's just like the Olympic village and everybody hooking up and like having a great time. Sounds fun, even though I hate the Olympics. And in fact, successfully helped organize against having them in Boston a few years ago. Hmm. Um, but man, what a ripoff to attend the Bad Vibes Olympics. <laughs> That's just <No>. so unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> and hence, I don't know if you guys have ever been to Japan, but it's like, it's so
1: japan japan is like dichotomy land like on one hand you know so so oppressive when it comes to sex and 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 then on the other hand obviously it's 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 out of control it is the perfect metaphor for this moment being in tokyo in my Mm. opinion my experience
3: so and to be clear here i i don't think you talked about but people in tokyo are like protesting the olympics being there right okay yes Mm -hmm. i mean on, on previous shows we have discussed it got
1: it okay Oh, we'll continue because it's going to go on for two weeks, guys. And we're not going to watch it. We're just going to cover it.
0: <laughs> it's weird that they're still having it. Like the pandemic is not over. Why are they having the Olympics? Genie, money is to be made.
1: Amazon uh, yeah. needs to advertise. Free lay needs to advertise. And don't forget, we all have to come together. Because this is a moment when we all have to come together.
0: I mean, I hate to be like capitalism ruins everything and makes everything bad. Cause that is generally the thing I always say, but like there's nothing inherently bad about the idea of people from all over the world coming together to play sports. Like it's not my thing, but it's fine. It's nice. Like it's a nice idea. And yet it is so incredibly destructive and horrible the way it's carried out under capitalism kind of makes you think my my proposals ever since we
3: organized against the Olympics in Boston they were supposed to be there in 2024 and we somehow defeated that um, even though everyone who had power in the city public and private sector was for it um my okay our proposal was just you pick somewhere that doesn't have a density got kind of some empty space empty-ish you just host the Olympics there forever I'm I'm all for the Olympics I like sports it's cool Uh, but you got to make it just some place so that you stop destroying every single place that the Olympics committee touches, which is exactly what happens every time.
1: And maybe there's some some, like sort of like virtual Olympics thing that you do. Like it's regional and you don't have to all, I don't, I don't know how, I don't do sports, so I can't tell you, but I think that they're especially in like austerity countries, Greece is a perfect example. I'm sure that they would be now that they have the facilities, they would be more than happy to host the Olympics every single year to get the tourism here and, to do the scammy things that my fellow Greeks love to do to people, including
3: myself <laughs> when the tourists come in. It's okay. I say, it's a good thing. I think it's great. Like take advantage of the tourists. Um, well, if the yeah, IOC is listening, I think they should uh, contact you. I think, I think you. they are actually.
1: <laughs> They're watching. Mm. All right. Alex Press, Jamie Peck. Thank you so much for joining us on Fun Friday. Always a pleasure having you.
3: Thanks for having me on, Namiki.
0: Yeah.
1: Alex's work at Jacobin and Jamie Peck is host of the Antifada. And what is the new show called again? And where can we find it?
0: Everybody loves communism. It is a new podcast from me and Aaron Thorpe, who you may know from the Trillbilly Workers Party or his other show, A Time of Monsters, or perhaps from his appearances on the Antifada. It's a, uh, yeah, it's a leftist theory podcast where we do the reading, so you don't have to. And then we bring on, super fine guests to have an even deeper discussion of the reading. So, you know, I had a sort of an improbable amount of success with this nerdy niche communist podcast I did called The Antifada. I'm hoping I can reproduce that with something even nerdier. So check it out. This, reminds, fm slash everybody loves communism.
3: this reminds me that I should also plug the podcast I'm doing about Amazon, which is called Primer. Um, and you can find it on Jackman radio. If you search that on anywhere like Spotify or iTunes, but also patreon.com forward slash primer podcast, we just put the Super seventh great. episode up and it's very fun. I feel like people are getting a lot out of it. You're doing a good job. I, I, I really enjoy it. I haven't seen, listen listened to the seventh one, but, thank you. um, I
1: think it's very good. Uh, I guess I'll plug matriarch too. It's our show, but I'll just <laughs> it's mm-hmm. go check out matriarch, uh, pack.com. We are, uh, speaking of Amazon, I don't know if I can say this yet. Actually, no, we're going to do something with Amazon soon. I'm not allowed to say it yet, but it's a pretty fucking crazy idea that came to us, uh, came to me, Jamie, you'll appreciate this, while I was doing mushrooms in Guatemala. Hell
0: yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> gonna, sometimes. When it comes out,
1: you're going to love it.
0: Sometimes they help. They know things. They're very wise. Oh,
1: It's crazy. It's insane and it's beautiful. So I can't, great teaser, but go to matriarchpack.com, go shut, sign up. And in the meantime, everybody else, uh, go check out all the great work of Alex and Jamie's. Thank you to our audience and stay in solidarity.
0: no-mickey show Momentarily for class solidarity, cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed, deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread, racism, homophobia, sexism, religion. in it's melted by. We live in time to build a new system, unionize labor rights, highlight the issue. Talking heads left his best. The saga continues, continues. The No Miki Show.